Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, we will be speaking with Craig Coopersmith, MD, FCCM, on gut failure and multiple organ dysfunction. Dr. Coopersmith is a former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine and professor of surgery at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. He spoke on this topic during the 48th Critical Care Congress, focusing on the gut as a motor of multi-organ dysfunction in critical illness. I'm happy that you're here with us today, Dr. Cooper-Smith, so we can learn more about this. I'm excited to be here. Before we start, do you have any disclosures to report? Um, I do not have any disclosures that are relevant to this talk. Okay, thanks. So what do we know about the gut and multiple organ dysfunction? Can you give us some sort of background to the field? So historically, the concept of the gut as the motor of MODS goes back to the late 1980s. And what almost every one of us learned in school is probably 5 or 10% correct and mostly incorrect. So what most of us learned in school was that in critical illness, there's intestinal hyperpermeability, and because of the holes in the intestine, intraluminal contents bacteria translocate out, and they in turn cause sepsis. That intellectually makes sense, and it turns out to be mostly wrong. So it turns out that the intestine does, in fact, have hyperpermeability and critical illness. There's three different pathways of permeability. And the ones that are mostly affected are relatively small. Intact bacteria are relatively large, and they can't actually get out. And in some ways, we know this because if that were not the case, every one of our patients would have E. coli bacteremia or Enterococcus bacteremia, and they don't. This is actually mechanistically showed in the early 90s, understanding that the way we have of looking at bacteria now is more advanced than it was then, They took trauma patients, and they um, implanted catheters in their portal veins, and they looked to see whether they can find bacteria in the portal veins, which is where the blood flow goes from the intestine. And they found it about 6% of the time, and almost every one of them was coagulative staph, so a contaminant. So in terms of actually finding intact bacteria in the blood, it almost never happens. We tend to see in the patients with neutropenic enterocolitis. So it's accurate to stay that there's intestinal hyperpermeability in critical illness and probably not accurate to say it's as simple as bacterial translocation. But there's been a tremendous amount of work over the last 30 years to talk about other ways in which the gut can be the motor of MODS. So if bacterial translocation isn't the primary um, mechanism, which, as you said, that's what we all learned, um, what other ways can the gut be involved in MODS? Well, there's about 10 different ways. So I'll simplistically say that the gut is made up of three different parts. Uh, There's the epithelium, and the epithelium is about uh, 30 to 300 square meters in size, which is half the size of a badminton court. There is the um, immune system, and the gut has more lymphocytes than any other place in the body, including the spleen or the blood. And then there's the microbiome, which has 40 trillion, and that's with a TR, uh, microbes inside. And there's more microbes inside of us than there are our own cells in our own body. The interplay between all of these in multiple different ways can ultimately end up leading to organ dysfunction. So there, all, the microbiome is 
altered to become more virulent, the gut luminal contents can come out through increased permeability. It doesn't have to be an intact microbe. It could be a microbial part or something which is secreted through a microbe. The epithelium also secretes toxic factors, and all of these together um, can cause changes locally and systemically, either through the mesenteric lymph or through the blood. And then further, there's a change in gut integrity with um, an increase in death and an increase in birth, uh, which also changes to um, altered um, gut integrity, which can be damaging downrange. So tell me a little bit more about the microbiome. So in some ways, when we look at our microbiome, we recognize that what we think of as who we are is interesting because you assume that you're yourself, but it turns out that you have more microbes inside your body than you have you cells inside your body. And uh, there's more um, microbes inside your body than there are you uh, cells inside your body. There's more microbial DNA by a factor of about 100 than there is you inside your body. And at baseline, the microbiome plays a critical role in health uh, and homeostasis and immune regulation and endocrine regulation and metabolic regulation. And in critical illness, all of this goes absolutely haywire. So as early as six hours, once somebody enters the intensive care unit, there's profound changes to the microbiome. And those get worse over time. These changes are caused by two different things. One is the illness state in and of itself. So being critically ill induces changes to the microbiome. The other is things that we do to try to make our patients better or more comfortable also induce changes to the microbiome. So for instance, antibiotics. But in addition to antibiotics, proton pump inhibitors, opiates, lots of other things that we do, almost certainly nutrition, changes the microbiome. So what happens to the microbiome is two fundamentally different things. The first is a remarkable loss of diversity. So at baseline, there's a thousand different types of uh, bacteria inside our intestine, and the most common bacteria makes up about 25%. By the time somebody leaves the ICU, in subsets of patients, the most common kind can make up 95%. And you can go from a thousand different types of bacteria to ultra-low diversity to four or five different kinds of bacteria. So we have a tremendous loss of diversity. In addition to that, not only do we lose diversity, but the bacteria can change their own virulence factors. Uh, So at baseline, the bacteria are our friends. They live inside of us. We do things that are beneficial for them. They do things that are beneficial for us. But bacteria can sense weakness. And when we get sick, they sense that we're sick. And instead of trying to be our friend and we do good things for them, they do good things for us, they induce their own virulence factors and they start attacking us. And so the microbiome is converted to a pathobiome in the ICU, and we have a combination of loss of the majority of diversity and overgrowth of pathogenic bacteria and induction of virulence factors that take things that are ordinarily benign and turn them virulent. That is really well put. (laughs) Really, you're very clear and very... Um, direct on that. So what could we do to address these changes in the microbiome? So there's three things that we can do at the bedside today. And one thing which we can't do at the bedside today, but has tremendous promise for the future. 
So intellectually, if you think about this, what we want to do is augment the good bacteria and decrease the bad bacteria, in addition to obviously minimizing medicines which are going to alter the microbiome, but sometimes we have to give them. So there's two different ways of augmenting the quote-unquote good bacteria. Um, one of them is some combination of probiotics or prebiotics or symbiotics. So probiotics are live bacteria that we give to a patient. Prebiotics are uh, non-digestible um, uh, bacterial type, synthetic bacterial parts, and symbiotics are a combination of the two. Uh, ultimately, the goal is either to give bacteria or induce bacterial growth on the inside. This has been tried extensively in the ICU. There's about 30 uh, studies that have been done, well-done meta-analyses, and probiotics decrease ventilator-associated pneumonia. Uh, to the best of our knowledge, they don't help anything else. They don't change mortality. They don't change diarrhea. They don't change other patient-centric outcomes. But it's challenging. Many of these studies are somewhat older, and they're remarkably heterogeneous. So when you talk about giving probiotics, we talk about what's the right type of bacteria. There's a lot of different types of bacteria. What's the right dose? What's the right timing? What's the right disease state? And if you have 10 different studies that are done different, different, 10 different ways, it's difficult to figure out what the most beneficial way would be. A broader way of doing this wouldn't be just giving specific bacteria, but we're giving an entire new microbiome. And that would be a stool transplant or fecal microbial transplantation. So fecal microbial transplantation or FMT is remarkably effective outside the intensive care unit. So it is standard of care in patients with recurrent C. difficile colitis. So on the surface, giving somebody a stool transplant sounds disgusting. And I understand that it sounds disgusting until you think about, about the classic New England Journal of Medicine paper that came out about six years ago that showed that the cure rate for recurrent C. diff with um, vancomycin was 30%. And the cure rate with a stool transplant was 92%. And all of a sudden, something that sounded disgusting became a cure. There's now multiple meta-analyses of well-done studies over seven RCTs of stool transplants and recurrent C. diff, and they all show the same thing, a cure rate of over 90%. So that's remarkably effective. It's also looking to be effective in things like inflammatory bowel disease. So why isn't it standard of care in the ICU? Well, if you think about these other uh, diseases we're giving, we give it for recurrent C. diff, you don't give antibiotics afterwards. You give them a new microbiome, and the microbiome stays there. In the ICU, you give somebody a stool transplant, and if you give them antibiotics, you immediately alter what you just gave. And so there has to be an absolute commitment to stopping antibiotics, which, of course, is very challenging to do in the ICU. In addition, we don't know the long-term effects of a stool transplant. We do know long-term effects of a stool transplant in patients outside the intensive care unit, and it has negligible side effects. It's, it's remarkably well-tolerated with a remarkable cure rate. But our patients, not only do they start out with a markedly decreased diversity, a markedly altered microbiome, they're also markedly immunosuppressed. And so if I were to say to you, I'm going to give this large immunological treatment to somebody who's immunosuppressed with an abnormal baseline, what's the long-term effect going to be? And the answer is, we don't know. And so the truth is, 
To date, there are seven case reports of fecal microbial transplantation in the ICU that are successful. I'm sure that there's more than the seven case reports, but it's still experimental and we need longer-term data. The opposite way of doing this would be decrease the quote-unquote bad bacteria, and that would be selective decontamination of the digestive tract, or SDD. So if we had this talk a year ago, I would have said to you, there's 29 high-quality studies of SDD in the ICU, and they show an improvement in survival with a relative risk of about 0.75. And that's remarkable compared to just about everything we do in the ICU. And the data are stronger than just about everything we do in the ICU. And then I would have said to you, do you do this in your ICU? And you would have said, no, I do not. And I would have said equally, I do not. And most of the world would say they do not. And the reason is essentially all of this data came from one country. And the one country has a baseline low level of antimicrobial resistance. And because of the fear of inducing antimicrobial existence by SDD, people didn't want to do it. And so it was persistent year after year of people in the Netherlands saying, you guys are crazy for not doing this. Look at the relative risk reduction and mortality. And the rest of the world saying, I'm so terrified that I'm going to create a new superbug that I'm not going to. That would have been one year ago. In the last year, an article came out in JAMA specifically looking at SDD in multiple different countries in Europe with higher antimicrobial resistance at baseline. And what they found was no benefit. They didn't find a reduction in, I'm sorry, they didn't find an induction of antimicrobial resistance, but they also didn't find the patient-centric um, decrement in mortality. So right now, if you're pro practicing in a place with high antimicrobial resistance, which I imagine most of the listeners here would be, including me in the United States, SDD is not something, based upon the most recent literature, that we should be doing. The fourth thing, potential way of changing the microbiome is sort of sounds like science fiction, but it's really cool. So I told you before that, that the microbes sit with us under basal conditions and they're our friends and we're their friends. We give them a place to be happy and healthy and grow and they do beneficial things for us, for our immune system, our metabolism, and our endocrine system until they recognize that we're sick. And when they recognize that we're sick, then they attack us. But that is sort of using anthropomorphic um, knowledge upon a, a bacteria, because the bacteria is not thinking, you're my friend or you're not my friend. It's a single cell organism. So there's actually some type of cellular signaling that actually tells the bacteria whether the surviving environment, surrounding environment is healthy or not. And it turns out that a lot of what uh, allows a bacteria to say, I'm in a healthy environment or not, is phosphorus. And some groundbreaking work by John Alverdi suggests that if you give intraluminal phosphorus, and he's done this in mice, clearly not in people, if you give intraluminal phosphorus, you can trick the bacteria into thinking that we're not sick. And so you can induce sepsis, and if you give intraluminal phosphorus, the bacteria do not induce the virulence factors. They do not attack us. So this isn't giving antibiotics to change the bacteria. This is giving something that tricks the bacteria into thinking the host isn't sick. And all of a sudden, you can take something which has an 80% mortality and change it to 100% survival. 
So can we do this today at the bedside? We can't. But in the future, it's a remarkable new paradigm of thinking, potentially, we don't need to actually treat the microbiome or the pathobiome with antibiotics with all the bad things they do. We can actually just trick the bacteria, prevent the overgrowth of the bad things, prevent the virulence factors from being induced. And just change their environment. And change their environment. That is fascinating. That really is cool. So how far are we away from having any idea whether that might actually work? Because as you said earlier, there are things that sound like they're good ideas, but they don't necessarily... Uh, that, that keeps those of us who run laboratories in business. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of things, there's a lot of work to go in between a mouse study and a person study. I'm, I'm fond of saying I personally have cured mouse sepsis about 20 to 50 times, and I have a lot of friends who have cured mouse sepsis 20 to 50 times or more than that. Uh, so it's, it's clearly a, a work in progress. With the microbiome, and again, there's clearly other ways in the gut can be the motor of mons, but in the microbiome, while we've historically known that we do have a lot of bacteria inside of us, I would say any meaningful data on the microbiome, the field has really been around for less than 10 years. And it's changing so remarkably year by year that I would say we're now maybe at the level of a fifth or sixth grader. Uh, A decade ago, we were at the level of a nursery school child. But in order to take this to the bedside, to say, how can we change this with all the complexity and critical illness, where every year brings remarkable new insights. And I like to bring up the concept of something that they just learned in the cancer field. So I think most people have heard of uh, anti-PD-1, the checkpoint inhibitors, which you know we're now trying in phase one trials in sepsis. And anti-PD-1, when it works, is a miracle drug in cancer. You know, our ex-president, Jimmy Carter, was treated at my medical center, and he was 90 years old with metastatic melanoma, widely metastatic. And now he's 93 years old, and he's talking cancer-free at our commencement each year. And that's remarkable. But anti-PD-1 works about 20 to 25% of the time, which means it fails about 75% of the time. And there's good basic science data to suggest the thing that determines whether or not anti-PD-1 is successful or not is the microbiome. So people think checkpoint inhibitors release the brakes, induce the immune system. That changes your response to cancer. It turns out the thing that determines whether or not it appears to be beneficial for cancer is the microbiome. This is data that's just about a year old. And as we, I, I understand that doesn't have to do with critical illness per se, but as we're just beginning to understand more and more about the microbiome and the pathobiome in the ICU, I'm fairly within a concept of that and skepticism about everything at baseline, but I'm fairly confident that this is something that we're going to be able to manipulate downrange, but we're truly at the understanding maybe of a fifth grader or sixth grader right now. Taking it to the bedside is going to probably going to have a higher level of a deeper understanding. Sounds like it, but it, it the, the potential of it is really fascinating. It is indeed. It really, that's very cool. Uh, do you have any final comments you want to make? There's multiple ways in which the gut can be the motor of the uh, multiple organ dysfunction syndrome. We've talked about one today, and it is truly fascinating to think about our guests on our inside, although you might not think that they're our guests since they actually outnumber us. And I am excited for the future about thinking about ways in which we can manipulate the microbiome. 
and potentially at another time we could talk about um, all the other multiple ways in which the intestine, because the intestine is made up of multiple different ways, um, can in fact uh, function as the motor of the uh, multiple organ dysfunction syndrome. Uh, because while what we learned in medical school and nursing school and APP school and respiratory therapy school might not necessarily be right, it might not be as simple as bacterial translocation, uh, there is an overwhelming amount of evidence that the gut in many ways can both initiate and propagate critical illness. And if we can get, uh, in, if we can intervene at a proximal level before downstream effects of changes of inflammation, of changes of the immune system, of changes in endothelial biology occur, we potentially can ultimately change the outcomes for our patients. Which would be wonderful. Which would be wonderful. So, well, thank you very much for talking with us today, Craig. Thank you very much. It was a lot of fun. And super fun to be with the past president of SECM, so, <laughs> and one of my mentors, so thank you. We have been talking today with Dr. Craig Coopersmith from Emory University about the gut and mods. This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care Podcast. For the Eye Critical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Margaret Parker, MD, MCCM, is Professor Emeritus of Pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York. She is a former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. She is currently serving as associate editor of Critical Care Medicine and Senior Associate Editor of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org membership for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.